I've been binging the music score. Oh, oh my oh, god! Fuck! I started doing Crazy Train. Crazy Train. Instead of the. That was, you know, the Halloween score was the first thing I learned how to play on a guitar, and I was really impressed that I figured it out on my own. And I didn't look it really? up or anything. Yeah, I was. It's, it's really impressed. interesting too because it's in five four time, which is really fucking odd. But yeah, um, it's, it's like some Dave Brubeck shit right there. Yeah, that's no, like almost like prog rock, but like it, it's yeah, <laughs> no, it's fucking excellent. But anyway, uh, yeah. So <laughs> welcome to Movie Left, uh, a Move Left Idiots podcast. I'm your it's, host Anthony Monterulo. Yeah, it's a, it's a socialist movie review podcast. We review movies from a socialist perspective. Fuck. <laughs> I'm leaving all of this in. It's Halloween. That's fine. Everything no, it's, so, yeah, no, it's it fine. is Halloween right now. It is Halloween right fucking now, 2018, and I've been drinking, so I've been stumbling all my words a little bit already. But uh, yeah, uh, we're here. And, uh, and the, the dulcet tones you're hearing right now are the voice of my uh, co-host, Comrade Dracula. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call him Comrade Dracula this week because you requested it. Since it is Halloween, and that is the origin of his uh, nickname. I deserve respect. <laughs> before, we, <laughs> before we went on air, he mentioned that uh, we were talking to Hillary Clinton, and you mentioned that she's the uh, Michael Myers of the Democratic Party. Yes. Uh, because she, she just cannot be, be stopped. Killed. I was doing a little uh, Donald, Donald Pleasance impression. Uh, I shot her in the heart. She's not human. <laughs> yeah, well, we already know he's getting the biggest over actor award for this. <laughs> but no. Oh, I love uh, which Donald is funny because he's actually I love him done. and he's like the most accomplished actor, but he's also the most over the top and least like subtle performer in this entire franchise. Oh, I well, you yeah. I mean, you need him to be like the professional doctor to. He, he's the worst doctor of all time. Can we, <laughs> up front, can we talk about how bad of a fucking doctor Donald Pleasance is? I mean, yeah. the dude literally is r- chasing after one of his patients, person he knows has severe psychological issues, and trying to fucking shoot him instead of trying. <laughs> and I love that, like everyone, like the cops keep trolling him by being like, "Well, you let him out," and he's like, "But I didn't let him out. I was the only one that wanted." He's like, to no, I literally him. did. I fucking got. <laughs> there and he was like roaming around like what are you talking about yeah um just walking around a bunch of zombies yeah but no yeah so and hillary is definitely the michael myers of the democratic party and i i do suspect that uh by 2026 we're gonna find out that some druid cult has been mysteriously reviving her like you find out in halloween <laughs> six that michael myers is like an undead yeah. you know immortal being uh yeah that movie fucking sucked but uh so anyway yeah uh if you haven't guessed uh we are reviewing uh, Halloween one and Halloween two, uh, the Rob Zombie versions, right? <laughs> obviously, the the, the the far superior versions. Uh, oh clearly, God, those movies clearly. are fucking awful. <laughs> I always wanted so to know bad. what Michael Myers would look like as a member of Slipknot. 
Yeah, you, uh, you, you, when I was watching, you know, the seminal, uh, you know, it's seventy eight horror classic Halloween. I was like, you know what, this really could use a ton of fucking steroids and a bunch of inane plot details, <laughs> like you know. And we'll have everything be bright strip colors. club that Michael uh, Myers' mother worked at. Like, give oh, me a fu- like, oh. it's just uh, whoever. I mean, Rob I, Zombie. I, it was, Rob fucking yeah, Rob exactly, Zombie. exactly. <laughs> Stick to music, man. I, I oh. like some of your shit, but like, yeah, not no. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, we are going to be reviewing Halloween one and two. Uh, we, we, you know, are both big fans of Carpenter, obviously, uh, for mm-hmm. me personally, he's, you know, one of my top three filmmakers, I would say. Uh, and I'm, you wow. know, I, I, yeah, no, I, I love John Carpenter and not just for the <clears throat> Halloween movies or the Halloween movie, obviously, but, um, and I'll get a little bit into Carpenter's career after, uh, you know, towards the end of the show. Cause I want to talk about his legacy and the legacy of the film. Uh, but uh, in any event, so we were talking about doing this, and we, you know, said, "Hey, maybe on Halloween we'll do Halloween." And then you mentioned that you actually kind of prefer Halloween too, which I thought was interesting, because mm-hmm. um, yeah. that's uh, well, not a take you hear often. But I, but I, I actually, it, it we'll feels talk, like we'll talk one, it out. Yeah, it feels like one solid movie to me. And of course, the first was sure. yeah. made for mm-hmm. only three hundred thousand dollars, and I in in grossed. You know, like the equivalent of what today would be like, I think, $150 million. It grossed 47 at the time in, in 1978 dollars. Yeah. $47 million on a $300,000 budget. Most financially successful independent film in American history, Halloween. Yeah. Fucking awesome. I, I think, unfortunately, Paranormal Activity has since beat it and, and doesn't deserve to. But, um, no, I don't really but think it's It held the record for a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, as far as the second one, it's I remember them both equally as a kid. So in my brain, they always felt like one film. But watching them together, it's just the second one is a little tighter as far as the structure of it. There's a few things that just work a little better as far as the editing and the pacing. And I know that some of it, people say it's a little bit too much of a slasher. Just, you know, oh, how long until this guy gets killed? How long until that guy gets killed? But I feel like, you know, they were trying to be a lot more like other slasher films that had come out in the three years between the two. Yeah. But I think the the film that it reminds me the most of that definitely was sort of, you know, just waiting around for each character for each character to get killed off was Ridley Scott's Alien. And I feel like, you know, sort of being trapped on that ship in Alien felt a lot like sort of being all trapped into this hospital where it's all dark and half deserted and, you know, it doesn't really take place. Uh, there is no daylight. You don't see it except for the very last moment of the film. You don't get to see the daytime before trick-or-treating starts. You're completely at, contained at night in that movie. So it feels a lot more kind of like The Warriors or, um, you know, uh, uh, Escape from New York in that sense, where it's completely contained uh, at night. Yeah. No, I, I actually really uh, like that about the film. I uh i i had always like kind of in my mind been like oh yeah well halloween 2 is obviously inferior but i i you know watching it back for the for the podcast i really uh can appreciate it in its own way now uh just to give people a little bit of a backstory as to the two films the first movie uh, as we said was you know it was john carpenter's first uh major movie he made another movie dark star which is not that great um, but this was his first major movie. It was very much like a ramshackle indie production. You know, his his high school buddies helped him make it. His uh, Nick Castle, his one of his high school friends, actually is uh, Michael Myers, the shape in the movie, because mm-hmm. he was like hanging around set and he's like, "Hey, you want to do this?" He's like, oh, "Yeah, sure." He's never acted before, but um, so 
you know, it, it the the first movie has a very admirable like indie riffic quality to it that I kind of love about it. Like it's not the most polished movie. There's scenes that are out of focus. There's like, you know, mm-hmm. the lighting's not great in some scenes, but there's just the 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 feat that he was able to accomplish with like you know rudimentary film school knowledge and just his his creative like uh, you know animus like it it's just it's just it's it's kind of awesome to me like to see that he he essentially made like the most well known and one of the greatest horror films of all time. Yeah. almost as well, like a lark like it was like yeah. <laughs> he didn't think it was and gonna be a the thing. character never says a word you never really you don't see his face more than an instant and one of the things that i think is really amazing is you know what you see his face really quick when he jumps on top of the car but it's like a couple frames and it's it's moving yeah. and it's far away 1978 when you can't pause you there's no way <laughs> yeah. you even you know could yeah. have picked it out but then there's that brief little moment when he's, you know, Michael Myers is trying to strangle Laurie and she tries to pull off his mask and gets it like a little ways off. And you get like a brief little instant where you see his face again, again, just like a couple frames. Uh-huh. And John Carpenter's has been approached by people that say, oh, I couldn't believe how grotesque his face was under that mask. And it, he, to his credit as a filmmaker, the, the guy's face was not altered in any way. It was just a normal person's no, he's face. Just like a normal guy. Yeah, but people were so convinced that he was disfigured under that mask because of how well the film is overall at making him this terrifying figure. People just put it in their head that what they had seen was a disfigured face under there. And when that and that's actually the the strongest thing about Halloween one, and I think actually the biggest difference between Halloween one and t- Halloween two is that Halloween one is much like Psycho, a nearly bloodless movie. It's it he- relies so heavily on like theater of the mind and power of suggestion. You, you, Michael Myers is terrifying in that movie because of how little we see him and how subtle everything is done. He's not, you know, Freddy Krueger fucking making puns, chasing you over the top gore. Oh, like, yeah. You know, <laughs> like, which yeah. I love too for its own, but you know, it's not, I don't consider that a great film. Like, I would it doesn't scare this. me, it's, you know, it no, doesn't scare it, me. Yeah, it, it's funny, but, um, and, yeah, and and that truly is what it is. It's like he, he he he's he's such a mythical like figure in this. When you watch it, when you see this film for the first time, you know, and mm-hmm. to a 1978 audience who hasn't really <clears throat> seen much uh, in by way of horror movies, um, that you do think like, oh, he must be this horrible monster under that mask, and 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 people remember that in their minds is like, yeah, that's the way he is, and that's that's the strength of this film is how subtle everything is done and and john carpenter cited psycho as uh one of the primary inspirations for the film um, yeah and you can and really see it and jamie lee curtis's mom yeah, was jamie, in psycho so was janet yeah. lee the famously yeah, killed in yeah. the shower scene in psycho ree, so she is uh, um that's my favorite sound and, to make in the shower by the way yeah <laughs> And um, yeah, I, I, so I mean, that's I, you know, just just for what it what it means in the in the larger you know horror film vernacular and just film you know vernacular in general. I think Halloween to me is always, I'm always going to love the first one more. Uh, the second one, funnily enough, so the second one, John Carpenter didn't direct; he wrote it. Uh, he didn't really want to write it, but he wanted 
uh, to make he wanted to get paid more. <laughs> yeah, he basically was like, "Look, they paid yeah. me fucking nothing for the first movie, <clears> so they they need to be paying me for the second movie. So I'm gonna write it." And he's like, he wasn't crazy about the script. He wrote it in like a weekend with like a six pack. He said something like that. That being said, it is actually it it really does hold together as a very good horror movie still. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, one of the things, you know, you can't watch it by itself. They really rely on on it being the same night and the same day and the same story, and they you have to watch the first one. You have to have known about the first one. It's not a standalone film. So in that regard, you can't really hold it up to the first one because the first one is a could be a standalone film all on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, and, and, you know, the thing that obviously changed was it, it you know, the the guy he got to direct it liked the first one so much he wanted to make the same thing a very bloodless movie that was more based on suspense and then it was actually Carpenter that was like eh, actually after it's all done he went back and reshot a bunch of stuff to make it gorier to make it less like his original vision so uh, which yeah, is funny because yeah, that's not his instinct typically I mean you see his later films and they're all I, he's not he's not a shock value filmmaker at all like he's no. he's, he's a very good like subtle. Um, you know, I, he's, I mean, he made so many amazing films after this too. He made, they, oh, I, and I, you know, I say that, but they live is not subtle at all, but it, you know, it, but it's not like schlocky. I would, I wouldn't, I would never call they live schlocky or like the thing or, you know, just, um, well, absolutely. Well, it's, you know, obviously the thing has quite a bit of gore in it, but that was kind of, they were, that was, it's an alien. But it was very the, like the visceral and like, you know, you know, uh, but yeah, so, it, it's, I think he just wanted to make sure it made money, and he wanted it to sure. compete on that level of these other films that had gotten a lot more gory in the last few years. Well, it's so funny, and I don't, I don't want to step too much on the, on our end of the podcast discussion where we're going to talk about the legacy of the movie, but a, a lot of this movie, and I think he even kind of said as much, it, w- it was made in response to uh, the Friday the 13th of the world and the Nightmare on Elm Street, well, not Nightmare on Elm Street yet, but like the slasher movies that came in the immediate wake of Halloween which were all copying the Halloween formula. And this was almost like a, a, like a copy of those copies. But those copies of the original Halloween failed to take away the central message of Halloween. They, they, mm-hmm. they kind of just, uh, they, they kind of acted as if it was supposed to be, you know, just completely about the 100% about the serial killer and just come up with a bunch of disposable archetypes for the uh, characters that are going to get killed off one by one. Uh, you know, and if you have sex in the movie, you die. Like all this shit that's just not true from uh, of the first movie and not really present, but it's like a uh, an unartistic person's uh, rendering of 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 the first Halloween movie. Oh, absolutely, and and I see this so many times where people just did not get certain elements they, yeah, they of these don't films. Yeah. Some of some of the most you know, one of the things I like about Halloween two is that most of the really unique things, uh, unique elements of Halloween one that I thought were there, you go back and watch it and they're not there because they're actually in the second one. The the song Mr. Sandman that everyone associates with the first film is not even yeah. in the first film. It's in the second one. And that in and of itself, it's bookended by that song. It opens and closes on it, right? And there are people, I'll read reviews online to this day, for the time it was released to today, who are like, I don't get it. Why was that song in there? It makes no sense. And it's like, are you kidding? This was, think about every David Lynch movie with some weird, you know, uh, sugar sweet bubblegum pop song over top of like the most horrifying, gory, disgusting, yeah. disturbing thing. They, they, they essentially it's just, create 
created that trope, which right. has been killed he, you know, to, <laughs> right. death, to death since But then. even if you look at like the theme of that song and the lyrics of it, it's about somebody finding their dream man, right? Mm-hmm. And here you have this teenage girl, play, you know, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, Lori, who is not the extroverted, you know, sexed up doing party and drugs teenager like the rest of them. She's much more reserved, but she still obviously has crushes she has a crush on the guy who on this kid who her friend's trying to set her up with and she's embarrassed by it um some people have said he's the you know he's the um the kid that gets killed in the horrible car crash well, he is actually they, they, uh, yeah, they identify is. him they later in the movie it. as ben gotcha. Tramer, yeah um, Which is a funny little Easter egg. <laughs> but the the you know the idea that she's sort of looking for that Mr. Right and then instead gets this nightmare is very much, you know, it's what we in film school are taught to uh, call a ironic juxtaposition. Uh, and in fact, when she's walking by herself and she's singing a song that she actually made up, Jamie Lee Curtis made it up because, of course, they didn't have money to buy the rights to anything. So yeah. she just made up a, a little song and sung it, and you can hear it in, on the audio. And that's the first moment there the camera pulls back and racks focus and you see Michael Myers shoulder. So it's like literally like the same tone of that song is something she's singing. And then he arrives who is the exact opposite of what she wants. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, I, you talk about the rack and focus. I I think the cinematography of both of these films, I, I, I just really love, uh, you know, obviously the first one has its flaws because it was made by inexperienced filmmakers, but even so there's so many um, like just fucking great shots to the point where it's like, you know, John Carpenter just has that instinctual directing gene in his body. Like you can't teach like Mm -hmm. just some of the shot composition. I mean, the shot of the uh, closet where, you know, where he busts through the closet and he, he turns the light on like with his hand, like as he's trying to, you know, stab Laurie, just that POV from the, from the bottom of the closet. It's just such a great. Oh yeah. uh, well, and to, to sort of contradict what I said before about how I love how the, the second one's completely shot at night, there's a bunch of scenes that are in broad daylight in the first one that are really fucking scary, too. Like, you wouldn't think as a director that when the bad guys crash through the closet that he would turn the light on. <laughs> but he <Yeah>. does, <laughs> you know, uh, or when he's um, in the sheets, you know, he's in like the, the, the clothes hung out to dry. He's just yeah, standing there and, and you're like, ah, God, that was fucking broad daylight. Like, you think nothing bad can happen in the daylight, but there he is. Yeah. Or, or just standing. You're just standing by the sedan outside the school, <laughs> or not the sedan, the station wagon. Yeah, I just, yeah, yeah. I love that. I love that shot where he's just like, "Well, here I am." That's <laughs> one of the biggest fan critiques of the movie. Is like, how the fuck does this guy know how to drive? He's been in a mental institution since he was like eight years old. Oh, and then, and but like he, the, yeah, but Donald Pleasant says he's like, I don't know. Did one of your guards teach him how to drive, or he yeah, says that, something that's like such that? A, that's such like a yada yada explanation. It's like, the, come give me a fucking break. But what? I'll, I'll, I'll forgive it. Well, what are um, my favorite it's funny though. favorite things? you notice about that scene where he's like maybe someone here taught him how to drive like he's criticizing people for uh you know in his mind possibly teaching teaching a a psycho killer how to drive a car but if you notice he was parked in the handicap spot when he gets into his car (laughs) in that moment (laughs) so it's like a little like he doesn't know how to fucking drive either (laughs) yeah no he's he's a dick in general uh dr loomis but uh yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, but uh, in terms of just the shot selection between that, I, I love the shot in the first one where, where Lori, uh, after she's uh, stabbed him, I believe, after coming out of the closet and he's like, he seems like he's dead and she kind of gets up, which, by the way, stupid fucking move to just drop the knife right next to him. The One of the all-time bonehead moves in, in horror movie history. Of course, um, yeah. But 
So, uh, and by the way, that's a, a trope that that movie kind of came up. But there's so many tropes that this movie created that were later, you know, kind of <clears> done <throat> to death. But it, it's admirable how many lasting uh thing you know like the thing you were talking about where he disappears in the sheets where it's like you see a character you look away you look back he's gone or like mm-hmm. how you think the killer's dead and you drop the weapon and then the killer comes back to life for you know j- just so many things but um so but that scene where she drops the knife next to him then walks out into the hallway and then you just see his face slowly emerge from from the darkness it, it, the complete darkness of the room behind her it's like well, it's there's such two an different image. There's two different ones. There's one where he's out of focus and he's not even in the frame, and he sits up into the frame, and then his head just rotates to look at her. And that's no, one of them, that, that's I one of the creepiest. That too, there's yeah. that one. There's that one. But then I think the one you're talking about is the one where he's in the shadows, and they you don't see it. And on set, they had like a, a slider, a dimming light, yeah. dimming light to slowly bring his face. Like he's not moving. His face just gets brighter, so it gives the illusion that he's just sort of appearing out of the mist basically but yeah and it's uh, a great effect it, it you know in the theater because it's just this slow creeping not everyone realizes it once and then all of a sudden it, it's this great like subtle uh filmmaking technique that i love where you kind of put something uh out, out of focus or out of the mind's eye or out of the immediate frame to 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 terrify people but you don't make it like pop out you just kind of let them yeah. discover it on their own i think that's a much well, more effective Another Scare. great thing is how many wide shots he has, where it's not a scary close up like, oh, there's the thing, it's right there, you know, it's and they they just do an ECU or a close up to scare you. There's all these yeah. scenes where it's a wide shot, and you're like, I don't know where to look, I don't know where the scary thing is because I can see like the whole room or like the whole yard all at the same time, and your your eyes are darting around the screen like trying to figure out where the, the danger is going to come from, uh, and also just using a you know when you use a wide shot like that at night, of course you have to you know you can um you know you really can like open up the the shutter and get these great shallow depths of field with a wide shot so that somebody who's only a couple feet behind somebody can be totally out of focus and even inside the hospital which some parts of it are fairly well lit you'll see a lot of that where they'll just shift focus from one person to the other real subtly but enough that you're kind of like well what did that mean like what am i like they they do a really good job of building suspense in this movie even though it's gorier and bloodier in you know about the first half of it yeah and and you know especially in the first film with when you with those wide shots a lot of it was used to kind of give you this looming sense of like you're almost seeing michael's perspective and it's like what the fuck is he doing where is he is he gonna jump out and kill like it's it's a great tension building technique that's Mm -hmm. uh almost subliminal but it's just a really (laughs) good uh you know Uh, you do notice in the opening shot of the first film where you're seeing young you know six-year-old michael's point of view that uh obviously it's the 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 view of the camera operator right yeah (laughs) so even though he's probably crouching down it's still like you know several feet above the top of the table (laughs) as it's moving around yeah right and i don't know if you know this but when you see the arm reach down that's supposed to be michael myers little kid arm that was actually the the woman deborah Deborah hill's arm one of the producers (laughs) and of course the arm is like it almost doesn't look like it's even a right arm it looks like it's a left (laughs) arm female arm yeah Yeah. but you know whatever it's and the and the camera goes out of focus during that shot too Right, right. Um, well, which, but you know, you know that but, uh, yeah, they, that shot's they, you know, impressive because it was one take. They, you know, they shot it in one. Yeah, or they, you know, they did, um, and they edited it. Tracking the, shot, the, but the house they shot in was torn up and looked like shit in real life, right? So they could shoot mm-hmm. that. So all the the couple minutes you see where it's all made up, they had to have like the entire cast and crew 
help with trying to fix that house up and then make it look like shit again, basically. Yeah. Like, there was nobody, they didn't have extra people standing around out and doing shit. They had everybody doing every job on that movie, parent, you know? That's what I love about it. I mean, that's, I, you know, and I love them both, but that's the thing I love about the first one is how, and, and I just say this having made, you know, an independent film myself where it was just me and a couple of crew people, and it's like, I just love that 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 fucking like you know fly by the seat of your pants guerrilla filmmaking aspect of that absolutely. Movie. And it's um, amazing how it came together. Give considering that because I know how fucking hard it is to shoot anything, let alone yeah, a yeah. major motion picture like this. Well, I myself was all, have also made a yeah. independent film. It's about a twenty minute long film, and one of the things that I was reading about that um, John Carpenter. Uh, had the characters do was wear their own clothes because they didn't have a budget for wardrobe. <laughs> and I also did a similar thing where he just, he gave Jamie Lee Curtis a hundred dollars and she went to JC Penney and just bought clothes she liked. Right. And I did the same thing for my film where I just gave money to the young women in, in my film and just said, well, here's the colors I want you to buy. You know, here, here's the color palette. Just go buy stuff that you would actually wear. Cause you're going to, you can keep it afterwards. Right. So that's that's yeah. what we did. So I think there's something something interesting about when you let the actor choose the look of their character in, in a yeah. large degree. Um, it just it's something about that feels much more authentic to me. No, absolutely. Um, so in terms of uh, favorite scenes from the films, uh, you know, for me in the first one, uh, there there are a lot of iconic scenes. I, I think to me the most iconic scene though is still uh, the scene where Laurie hides in the closet and he bursts through. I think that's that's the image that most people think of when you think of Halloween. It, it you know, it's clearly a, a bit of a an echo of uh, her mother's shower scene in Psycho. Uh, you know, there's definitely allusions to that. Uh, and I think it it, it just it, it that's when the movie really kind of kicks into gear because you've seen you see him kill people earlier on in the film, but they're all fairly tame kills. You know, like the one guy he kind of stabs uh, like through to mm-hmm. the wall. He he never comes across as like vicious like as like rabid you know like he's he's always very measured and slow and just happens to like kind of stab somebody and that's the moment where he gets frustrated because he can't get... everyone else he's been able to just kill no problem but Lori has managed to uh evade him and and, and he's you can tell he's getting desperate because he's just so driven by this desire to kill her you know mm-hmm. for whatever reason well but and she's she's actually, also yeah macgyvering her way out of it you know everyone yeah that's that's the amazing part about it yeah everyone sort of praises alien because the protagonist turns out to be a woman which was sort of hidden at first who then is the one who has to like fight to figure out how to survive well that alien came out after this movie and if you look at this movie it it laurie's not really the main character for most of the film she's Mm -hmm. you know it's mostly the you know the, the cops and donald pleasant pleasance you know um so I, I feel like this film did a couple of those things that Alien is praised for, but this movie doesn't get that praise for. You know, when she's in the closet and like, oh, I'll make, I have to make a stabby thing out of a coat hanger now. Okay, I'll do that. <laughs> you know, it's not like she she's, just got away. Yeah. Well, she's the original final girl, which is something we'll talk about later when we talk about the legacy <clears> of the film. <throat> but uh, that's a trope that uh, I think is an, an immensely positive uh uh, film you know trope that's lasted on to this day and taken on a lot of different forms but um yeah to me that scene's iconic uh and that whole sequence really you know the the, the whole sit up and turn thing which is fucking and still like just creepy as hell and like you know uh 
WWE wrestler The Undertaker actually stole that from him. He always did that like, throughout uh-huh. his career, like that sit-up thing. <laughs> right. Um, it's just funny. But uh, yeah, so that that whole sequence is is just amazing. Uh, <laughs> then the absurd uh, him getting shot by Dr. Loomis when he does this kind of theatrical arm motion backwards and then falls through the window. Yeah, but well, um, that's that's what that's what a little mini porch like that is for is to fall off. Yeah, of stumble back. Why else would you fucking have that? It's weird. <laughs> see, um, have you, no- you noticed when he looks down to see where he was and he's gone at it like in the first one, the yard's mostly dirt and there's no lawn there. And in the second one, it's like this plug. Astroturf, you know, and there's like an impression of him, like a comical yeah. impression of him. Yeah, <laughs> one of the things apparently they they wanted Donald Pleasance when he looks down to look shocked and surprised, and Donald Pleasance mm-hmm. was like, "Why would he look surprised? This this is what he keeps thinking is going to happen. It happens." So they shot both ways, and then of course the one that worked better was the one where he looks down. And he's just like, "Yep, saw that coming." <laughs> yeah. But I like that about it. That's actually, I think that was kind of a like him pulling out his actor card there because he was like, no, I like, look, L- Doc Loomis fucking knows that this guy's on is is a monster. Mm-hmm. He's unkillable. He 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 knows he's in his in his heart of hearts. He knows he's gonna look down and he's not gonna be there. He does. He's not gonna be shocked. He's yeah. Like, oh, fuck. Yeah. I fucking told well, you, idiots. So like, this is- speaking of Donald Pleasance, I mean, from uh, what was the movie where they shrink everyone and put him in this little little spaceship and a syringe into the body to go fight the thing whatever uh incredible voyage was that it In- yeah fantastic voyage or incredible- yeah, yeah yeah i think I, you, I think yeah. you're right but he's always played sort of like this slightly unhinged doctor character i'm sure you've seen thx 1138 george lucas's first feature film no i actually haven't seen that oh my god are you kidding me Donald Pleasant yeah. steals the fucking show from Robert Duvall in that film. I swear to God, you've got to watch that. Yeah. Watch watch the redone version because they did some CGI, but it looks decent. It's not like watching the the, the Star Wars being ruined by new CGI added in. This oh, actually God. works really well with the film. But oh, talk about cult classic. Um, and just a sense of confinement and insanity. And it's basically like a whole society that lives underground and everyone's controlled by the government. Shock of shocks, right? Um, yeah. But it, but everyone, it was sort of like at a time when the war on drugs was just starting uh, in real life. But in this movie, it, this dystopia, everyone is forced to take drugs to be subservient and just go to work and have no emotions, basically. right? And anyone that exhibits emotion will be beaten by the police and then reprogrammed, right? So... Then Donald Pleasant's character kind of comes into it, and he's just batshit brilliant in this film. <laughs> yeah, I gotta check it out. Um, yeah. So what was it? oh so yeah so that, that you know I, there are a lot of strong scenes in the first one that that one stands out to me. As far as the second one, uh, I, you know <clears throat> there there aren't as many iconic scenes from that uh, film that I can think of. I you know obviously it, that movie's a lot more focused on kind of the kills, like some of the absurd kills. The uh, hot tub in particular, the the, the hot tub kill the, <laughs> the, the hot is, tub of love, yeah, yeah, is just uh, the most uh, it's the most memorable scene in the movie for sure for me because it was just horrifying would, the first why time. Why would you, you have a it. hot tub in a hospital that can kill people? Like I thought, that's like a thing I, we put in jails, not hospitals. Right. Yeah, Joe Arpaio's fucking uh, prison system. Yeah. No, so I yeah it. Uh, well, I guess it's like a therapy tub, but I I don't know why it would get that hot. But what? I, it, but in any event, it, you know, I'll, I'll I'll go with it. Um, but yeah, the just the dunking her in the hot tub over and over and over again till her skin just flit, like peels off her face. Oh, it's fucking gross. Um, by the way, I don't I I don't understand how Michael Myers' hand uh, wasn't similarly scalded because it was underwater. How did he get t- shot six times? Yeah, that's true. 
Well, okay, I mean, so actually, that's but that brings up an interesting like contrast between the two films because I, you know, the thing I love about the first movie and that all the the later sequels, especially, you know, it started with two, but it got really kicked into overdrive, and the later ones kind of undid. Is this idea of Michael Myers as like this immortal, unstoppable, like you know, killer? And I I love the mystery of the first movie where it's like, you know, theoretically he could just be this fucking like raged out lunatic who who never makes a sound shot. really he never no you know well no in terms of when i, when I say raged out, i mean like <clears throat> it's conceivable that a human being could survive what he survived in the first movie like it's it, it's it's within the realm of like suspension of disbelief he shot him in the heart i mean come on <laughs> well we didn't see, well the thing is you don't see any there they, they couldn't afford any kind of squibs so you don't see where you actually get yeah. shot so he could have technically been miming getting shot. And, I mean, no, Doctor Loomis I, I is think just an that, awful shot. <laughs> to me, I always thought it was more like it. He he is some kind of inhuman supernatural thing, but he still can be hurt. But it only lasts for so long. It's like Wolverine healing factor. Like he gets Maybe. shot, he goes down, and then he gets up a little bit later. Like he does need some time to recuperate. So, uh, on that sense, like yes, if it bleeds, you can kill it. Um, but in the second one, he gets his eye shot out, and he is blinded by that, right? So yeah. it, clearly, like it, it, he the bullets are actually going into him, and they are hurting him, and they're capable of blinding him at least for a while. Um, and then, of course, at the end of the second one, he burns to death, right? Yeah. So at least if we follow the, the mythology of just the first two films without going into any of the further one we know that there's got to be at least some supernatural level of uh, being able to heal from what would otherwise be lethal wounds right so there's that at least there there is i i I just i don't know i i I like part of me wants to hold on to the, the 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 fact that you don't know anything about him in the first movie and that he is mysterious and that he is in theory he could just be a, a a human that's able to that's so fucking crazy that he you know kind of fights through the pain with adrenaline of, of being shot you know with, yeah with non-lethal wound. but you know then the later the later later sequels just go off the fucking rails to the point where he's being revived by druid uh you know druid cults well, and but like, they, there's that <laughs> scene in the second one in the school where he's got the they find the knife through like the kid picture and yeah. Michael Myers apparently like wrote the name of some god so of death. Yeah. yeah. So they're Sam they're already Hayden hinting at it. And I liked that they only hinted at it and just had like a very slight no, the suggestion that there's are mo- largely, more going on, but yeah. Yeah. Largely good on that front. I you know, I think I think once they went full on like gets his head chopped off in one of the fucking sequels and then is back in the next movie. Like give me a fucking break. But yeah, no, um, that's just dumb. Uh spoiler alert. But so uh, for for a movie you should never watch, uh, but, <laughs> and I but, will uh, die happily never. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but yeah. So I, I found that to be interesting, and I, I you know the that actually brings up another kind of difference between the two movies is that, uh, you know, the whole idea of um, Laurie Strode being Michael Myers' sister is not something that was ever originally intended. It, like, literally, the only reason he goes after her in the first movie is because he sees her outside of his childhood home that he's kind of holed up in after he escapes, and he just becomes obsessed with her and be obsessed with, you know, killing her after he sees her in that in that first movie. Uh, you know, now Carpenter, in writing the second movie, you know, in in which he says he kind of regrets some of the stuff he wrote in about her character, I think, including that, he came up with this whole kind of, 
semi-convoluted plot of her being uh, Michael Myers' sister uh, and, you know, her not knowing it, um, which is interesting and kind of drives all the sequels after that. But I, I, I love the... The thing I love about the first movie and why and and the fact that that plot line doesn't exist is that he really can be anyone. Like it, the, I think that's what scared people about that movie is like that could just be some fucking crazy guy that escapes from the mental institution, um, and and, and goes on a killing spree in my neighborhood, in my sub white, you know, sleepy mm-hmm. suburban area, which is the the appeal of that movie. It's one of the first movies that I know of that was. Uh, that put that kind of a, a, a crazy well, killer on the loose right. in All that the, setting. It, it was a new mythology. You know, you had Dracula, you had the werewolf, you had the cursed mummy. Um, yeah, like Victorian You had zombies. Egypt, yeah. All those things already existed, and this was like really the first new you know, horror mythology that was ever created. And they tried different masks too that were supposed to be really freakish and, and over the top. And they all were scary, but they were like, then they thought, well, we don't have any money for those. So, uh, <laughs> you know, what if what if the mask is just a completely emotionless blank face? You know, and they were like, oh, that's even worse. <laughs> that's the scariest thing of all. <laughs> yeah. So, and famously, they had a couple, ma- they, they initially, they had a couple masks to select from at the end. They almost went with a uh, kind of a, cr- a crazed clown mask that, you know, to kind of mimic the, the, the opening scene where he's dressed as a clown as a child. Mm-hmm. But then one of the uh, prop guys on set fat went to like this Halloween's or this like local, like hardware store or whatever uh, department store and found a uh william shatner mask uh you know, people uh, mistakenly say it's a captain kirk mask but it's actually from another one of his fit like movies that are even that's even less that's uh, <laughs> he makes it uh, even better really, i didn't really know funny. that part of it <laughs> and and they literally bought this mask for two dollars uh took it back to like the kind of prop you know whatever area uh, make the eye holes bigger, painted it white, and and kind of changed the hair around, and it's like the most iconic mask in in the horror film history. <laughs> and it's yeah. like just yeah. this piece of shit mask they bought for two dollars, and and you know did, went to like Michael's Crafts and well, put some fucking and, glitter and on. Not it. even just the mask. I mean, the mask is great, but just the fact that he's wearing like a you know like a like a a car mechanic um, coveralls, yeah, coverall jumpsuit, like. Think about how many things we've seen that that have mimicked that. I mean, the whole band Slipknot—that was their whole fucking thing, right? Yeah. Just the whole, the, and the idea of like, and coverall, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, those it's were iconic. more exactly, and it was just the idea that how how plain and simple and boring there was no real gimmick to this. It's just I think that kind of speaks to letting the audience make up what's so terrifying about that person in their own mind, as evidenced by the people who thought that he was actually disfigured under that mask when they saw him for a split second mm-hmm. and he wasn't, yeah. right? Well, and, and there's something so terrifying about the expressionless, like, not... You know, he could have come out there with, like, a prosthetic on his face, like, where it's, like, all, like, bug eyes and, like, you know, sharp teeth. Like, that's that's not last... That, that's, that doesn't stick with you. The image of that doesn't stick with you. The thing that's chilling about uh, this is that you only just get a like a brief window into his kind of soul through his eyes, which you we almost never see in the first movie, and it's like he's just this this blank, emotionless killing machine, and it's like mm-hmm. there's no 
reasoning with the sky. There's no vanquishing the sky with a fucking spit. You know, all the goofy shit you could do in like uh, in most yeah. horror movies. It's like he's, he's like no, the he's Terminator. Just, he's the he yeah, can't no, be I mean, killed. He can't be reasoned with. <laughs> <laughs> Which is another kind of not the Terminator, but uh, one of the inspirations for Michael Myers also was Yul Brenner's character in the original Westworld film. Like it, that, there's this unstoppable killing machine. Uh, that's mm. just empathyless and emotionless, and and you and you can't reason with him. Uh, so I I just think that that it it's just the, all the things that had to come together for that movie to to be as fucking amazing as it is. It, it's kind of mind blowing. Like you know, just any of those things. Went, if they had a right. clown mask, it like this movie probably wouldn't. We no, wouldn't be talking it'd be, about this. It'd right be now. terrible. It'd be terrible. Or if they had you know a huge budget it would have been terrible. Yeah, or, no, really. Yeah, it's, it's uh, crazy. Know, it was... Like, the, if they yeah. went to that department store and there wasn't a fucking Captain Kirk mask there and they had to choose from, like, two other masks, we might not be talking about this movie right now. It's just William Shatner went back in time to make sure it was there. <laughs> no. Um, one, one of the other little interesting tidbits I was reading about was that, you know, again, the the first only major talent on the film was Donald Pleasance. Uh, he's, he's the main... Or he's the first person credited... Um, and then I think Jamie Lee Curtis is the last because it was introducing Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. Uh, he, he, um, only took the movie because he, his daughter who was like the music in assault on precinct 13, which I think came out between, you know, that, that did come out before this. Yes. That was, um, and he hadn't even heard the music. He just knew his daughter liked it. So that's why he decided to join on. So you've got this much more <laughs> uh, thespian type actor, and usually they don't like to do films like this, or they, they regret it, or they don't like to talk about it. And he was like, yeah, I'll do it. Fuck it. <laughs> well, they offered um, the movie to, to Christopher Lee and yeah. Peter Cushing, and they both yeah. turned it down, which is and hilarious. Christopher, Christopher Lee said it was the worst mistake of his career <laughs> Yep, <laughs> to, to turn yep. it down. Instead of Dr. Loomis, he ended up being fucking Count Dooku. So, you know, things worked out for Christopher Lee. He's fine, but. Well, he's um, dead now, but. Yeah, he was fine, yeah. He had a fine career. Yeah. Uh, so just I want to get into some uh, some of the interesting kind of tidbits I uh, found about the movie, uh, about both films. Uh, I'll start with some of the stuff I found out about Halloween 1. So uh, Carpenter and Deborah Hill, uh, who was John Carpenter's girlfriend at the time, who at really. Uh, by the way, uh, is almost as much responsible for this film as Carpenter is. She wrote a good chunk of it. She wrote all of the uh, the female dialogue, like all the dialogue between Jamie Lee Curtis and her friend group. Like she she had a she had a big hand in this movie, and she kind of gets forgotten because Carpenter put his name at the front of it, um, which mm-hmm. was kind of just his became his trademark. But um, I, she's she's kind of the unsung hero of this movie. Um, but in any event, so John Carpenter and Deborah Hill have stated many times over the years that they did not consciously set out to depict virginity as a way of defeating a rampaging killer. Uh, the reason why all the horny teens all die is simply that they are so preoccupied with getting laid that they don't notice that there is a killer at large. Uh, on the other hand, Laurie Strode spends a ton of time on her own and therefore is more alert. So that was literally just a plot device that you know was written into the into the film to kind of knock off all these characters and people kind of misread it in later years and turned it into this almost as if like horror movie slasher movies are like this morality play that like if you have sex or if you do drugs you're gonna die in the movie and the the final girl the the girl that survives is supposed to be this virginal you know uh, drug-free character and, and john carpenter's like no that's fucking ridiculous like i don't that's not cool <laughs> nothing that's not cool but he's like that's not the <laughs> message i was trying to john carpenter is no. like 
a pretty pretty left dude like when you, you know, actually you don't think to, john you know, carpenter was trying to run a uh anti-sex uh anti-drug yeah, right. message in the 80s with reagan yeah the guy I who mean, made they live is definitely uh trying to run like a uh, like a religious right uh type of, yeah um but but that's yeah and that's one of the things and i'll talk about it a little bit later that i think people misinterpreted about the movie and then based into the entire genre of slasher movies on subsequently so uh i think that was an interesting well, uh, you know, it, it it's not a trope the first time you do it, right? It's a trope every time you do it afterwards. Sure. So you yeah. could argue in the second one, they kind of were like, well, they liked this, so we'll just do more of that. But, yeah. you know, one of the things I like about the second one is you, at least when you see her go to the hospital, you think, oh, well, she's safe now because there's hospital people. Like, that's, you know, there's EMTs there. And then you realize, like, they're the, the EMTs are like sleazeball horny young dudes too and you see how they act there and it's like they're supposed to be like fixing sick people not trying to get laid in the fucking hot tub of the, the worst hospital <laughs> st- much like he's the worst doctor of all time they're the worst uh, yeah. hospital staff of all time um, also there's like four people at that fucking hospital like i, I don't well, care how fucking slow it is like that seems i've crazy been to, to i've been to a small town hospital late at night and walked yeah. around and it was like that where it was just That's there was creepy. just they I'd turned so the lights off out. yeah it was really fucking creepy i think that's why i i identify so much with the second one is because i i've been in hospitals when they were that like lights turned off and empty and you know like in just in your head that like people die in hospitals they're fucking haunted right people die all the time and there's something i don't know that's just scarier about a hospital than just a suburban neighborhood for whatever reason to me um yeah yeah um uh, so Carpenter said, uh, and and this is something I actually learned from, uh, there's a podcast called um, Halloween Unmasked that kind of did like, it just came out recently, did a breakdown of all these different kind of themes of the movie, interviews with Carpenter and Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, and he talked about how, you know, he grew up in Bowling Green, Kentucky. He was born in upstate New York, but his father moved for work like when he was fairly young. And he grew up uh, in this in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and he's like, I learned about Ultimate Evil growing up in the Jim Crow South. And and if you look at his career and all and the kind of themes of all his films he's trying to get across, you can see uh, he was almost kind of radicalized by by being born in New York and then just moving into this this really kind of alien land where it's like, why do you like all these people hate? all these other people just because of the, like it, it, it's just a fascinating kind of origin story for Carpenter. And I think it really informs all of his uh, work later in his career. It's, it's an interesting tidbit that I don't think a lot of people know about Carpenter. Mm. Um, and yeah. that was, you said that was a whole podcast series or just one episode of a podcast that was about this? No. Well, there's like a little mini series that the ringer uh, just did, you know, in the lead up to the new 2018 Halloween film called mm. uh, Halloween unmasked. It's an eight part podcast series. I think, you know, anyone that likes the Halloween films and listens to podcasts, which I assume is everybody that's listening to this uh, should check that out. Cause it's, it's got a lot of really interesting little tidbits from those films. Yeah. Um, I mean, like if they don't, kind of, then they must really story. hate us and they're looking for something to, you know, uh, nail us on. So yeah, if, you're, if, if one of us is running for <laughs> office in 15 years and you're listening to this, trying to find some dirt on us, uh, 
you know, hopefully we've entertained you so far, but um Anthony yeah. called a lady a whore last week, and I don't approve <laughs> of that. So uh shame on you, oh, sir. Oh my god. Well, it was in the true sense. Well, whatever. <laughs> um so yeah. Uh oh, so uh this I thought was fucking crazy. So they made this movie in like 20 days, um, start to finish, which is insane when you you know in terms of the way you know movies are made now over over months uh Mm -hmm. carpenter composed the score to this movie uh in four days and you know we talked about it before we went on air but the score especially in the first movie i think and in the second movie too also uh, just completely adds another dimension to the to the film like i I think that movie with like a, a a rote like uh, standard Hollywood horror movie score would not be nearly as effective as it is. I, I think the score just completely it's yeah, it's the best thing about these movies to me. Yeah. Um I mean the score in the second one is pretty much the same as the first, but it's you know again just a continuation. It echoes it a lot, yeah. And Carpenter um, did the score of the second one also. It, yeah, it, it's well I mean there's really only five main pieces of music and they're very simple and it's just like a very simple sound that is sort of haunting repeated over and over and over to the point where you just start going insane um yeah it very much reminds me of a movie just came out a few years ago which is also very much a horror film sci-fi horror film under the skin with scarlett johansson where there are pieces of music and i actually heard the film score for under the skin before i saw the movie and the score by itself Mm -hmm. was so fucking haunting that i was I didn't like listening to it by myself at night <laughs> that it was hmm. that affecting. And then when I saw the film, I was like, Oh my God, this is like the music was already in my brain. I already knew the music. So it felt familiar. And like, it was haunting me more because I already heard it. Uh, and, and every time I go back and hear the music for Halloween one and two, it's just, I can again, there... listen to the film score by itself. And it's more affecting than watching it in the film. Now. Something that Carpenter, I think really gets is there, there's just, there's just, there's like there's some music that's just existential existentially terrifying like it, it, i think it just it touches on this almost primal kind of dread in you and i i've experienced that with a couple scores i think actually his score uh to prince of darkness i don't know if you've ever heard that but i'll i'll send you a link to that after this if not it's um one of my favorite carpenter films and 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 it the, the score to it is just very unsettling and like really just fucking gets under your skin like still no matter what like i had it uh on in the car once uh, and, and like my girlfriend's like you change this it's like really not like it's really fucking freaking me out. like <laughs> it, it, it's just it's got to, it's just got this really like you should ethereal, play at your wedding otherworldly i know right <laughs> uh, otherworldly quality to it and it and i think that carpenter just you know he's very modest about his filmmaking and his music but he's a fucking great musician. Like he just really instinctively gets how a film should be scored. And I think he's one, a rare creature in that he's a great filmmaker who also is an amazing composer. And I think that that's something that, that that's such a, like that's almost a marriage on films is, is like, you know, how the, what the movie is set to, whether it's, you know, using, you know, uh, songs or if it's scored like that and the the filmmaker's vision it could often ruin or enhance a movie but when you, when it's a singular creative figure like carpenter who knows what it is going to look like and what it should sound like i think that's a really 
unique thing that you don't get too often with mm-hmm. movies, you know? Oh, they had some uh, big award ceremony for John Williams, I think. And they had mm-hmm. Spielberg come out and say, I want you to, he had like a little film montage and it was a bunch of moments from all his favorite films or all his best films with everything in it, all the dialogue and sound effects, but with all the music taken out. And he's like, now I want you to watch this, you know, minute and a half of my films without John Williams music. And you watched it and they were the most boring fucking moments of the movies <laughs> without the music there. Uh, and obviously this is John Carpenter's music is not at all that like uh, John yeah. Williams, but uh, still equally as iconic. I don't think you could have these movies exist without the music that's in them. Yeah. Here I have the, uh, I actually have the Car- Prince of Darkness thing. I, wanna, I just want to play a couple seconds of that just so you can see right. what I'm talking about. I'll put on my. Uh, I'll put my headphones in. I think this is the right one. Oh, so eighties. It's very eighties. <laughs> it's like I, I'm putting on leather gloves and hopping into my Lamborghini right now. <laughs> uh, I don't. I'm just skip ahead. I don't think this is the right one. Well, yeah. I mean. I, there's just a general kind of dread that like all of his his score uh kind of you know instills in you yeah this is part of the yeah any event um yeah he, he's great <laughs> basically was the point of that have so, you seen uh, the the james con film uh thief have you seen that? No, one? I, I, that's one of oh. my, because I love Michael Mann, so that's one of my. His first movie is his best, and the music in that is very Carpenter esque, but a little bit more lush, not mm-hmm. quite so stripped down and isolated, but it definitely has the same, you know, late seventies, early eighties. Uh, well, I can't believe you know, the cinematography of that movie either. I've seen just like, oh, stills yeah, from no, it. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. Insane. It's phenomenal. Um, it's it's like you see all all the elements of all the rest of his films he would do later, but yeah. in their most you know nineteen seventy nine Chicago gritty and and also kind of like laser vaporwave kind of aesthetics combined in that. So definitely check that out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. Uh, the, the dark lighting from the film, uh, from the first film, came from necessity because uh, they literally did not have money for more lights. So they relied on like a very small lighting kit that they had to do all the lighting. So that, but that really adds to the tension of that movie. Like, that, oh, that everything is in, well, you know. And, and before this, but if you can go back a few years before this, they were still shooting, um, you know, high noon sun with like a blue filter on it and calling that nighttime. And it looked terrible. You know, awful, if you've seen awful. old westerns where yeah, they do yeah. that shit. So this was really like the early, the late mid to late seventies was really the first era you could shoot at night and not flood it with fill lighting. So um, you know, props to them that they were able to do it and still make yeah. it look, you know, be able to tell what's and now going you can on. Shoot with the new fucking cameras, you could shoot in like any situation and have like minimal lighting and you'd be fine. You know, like oh, yeah. But natural lighting is always gonna look more realistic you're gonna yeah, you're gonna choose sure. where to put the camera better based on where the lights already exist than you are if you just go well i'm putting the camera here and then i'll move all the lights to be around it and then you're really limited because if you move too far in one direction now you've got a, a light in the shot so i, I feel uh-huh. like shooting with available lighting is always going to make the photography better 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I I, I love shooting with natural lighting, uh, which I also did out of necessity because I can only afford like a couple of clamp lights and you know mm-hmm. whatever random ass. But yeah, in any event, well, um, you can. I mean, one of the things I did, I this, I mean, just as an example, you can get lights to augment what you already have that are natural lights. Like yeah. I was shooting. Um, most of the thing I shot was indoors, but I wanted mostly uh, daylight to spill in. So I actually shot on a um, tungsten stock with a yellow filter and then bought uh, daylight balanced light bulbs for indoors. And everyone thought I was crazy because they had no idea what I was doing, why I was doing that. <laughs> but I wanted a, I wanted a, like, yeah. They're like, why don't you just use tungsten balanced lights and tungsten balanced film? I'm like, well, I was like, I want to, I want a finer grain. <laughs> so I was yeah. just, I was doing all kinds of things I didn't need to, but it looked great. It looked, it looked exactly the way I wanted it to when I was done, which that mattered more than the cost really. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wish I, I, kind of studied that more in school i was always way more into the writing aspect of it and i was kind of just like eh, we'll figure out how to shoot it you know <laughs> which i think funnily <laughs> enough carpenter kind of was like too but he just happened to have this innate talent for uh finding the shot that that you know i don't necessarily think i have but um you know everyone has their own kind of skills in every <laughs> in different areas uh the movie that tommy and Lori are watching uh is the uh, thing from another world, the 1950, uh, 51 movie, uh, which is funny because John Carpenter later went on to remake that, you know, as the thing mm-hmm. like that, that they were watching the original thing from 1951 in that scene. And people have remade his version of the thing terribly since then. Oh, yeah. Like if you yeah. look at the look at the monster effects in in 1986 <clears throat> for the thing, which even then were like a like compared to the Terminator were not as good as special effects, but they still hold up way better than the CGI they did in like the, the 2012 remake of the thing that looked There's, just fucking terrible. Yeah. The, the, I am I'm 100 percent like team practical effects. I fucking hate CGI, not just not in principle, but like I just hate the way that it's used as a cost saving measure and it just looks not nearly as good as movies from the eighties and nineties that use practical effects. And it's like, we should not be skimping on this when it's clearly better for films, you know, for any kind of sci-fi or horror or anything to, to put in the extra work to do, to do this effect practically. And like, mm-hmm. you know, you look at, uh, there's actually a bit of a, of a revival in that in like modern independent horror movies. There's this oh, great yeah. movie. Yeah. Uh, called The Void that came out a couple years ago. I think it's streaming on Netflix. I, I highly recommend to anyone who likes uh, kind of Lovecraftian, like cosmic horror, um, but it's almost all practical effects. And, you, and it's got a lot of <coughs> echoes of Prince of Darkness, which is another Carpenter movie that I love. Uh, and I, I think there's definitely like kind of a revival, like, you know, the way like in uh, the 2000s, like there was kind of this revival of like almost like uh, New York, the New York punk scene type of, you know, music with like the strokes and shit like like a move away from the kind of no absolutely electronic you know well it, and all that rap core bullshit was yeah oh and new metal obviously so yeah. um i remember when all that like uh the strokes just one two beat bullshit came out uh beck was pissed off because he was like well i could write a whole albums of that shit if that's well i was like oh, you're getting a little salty there beck yeah i know <laughs> Um, hey, that first Stroke sound was fucking great. Um, you know, I, it, I, it, it, it spawned a lot of uh, subpar imitators, much like the White Stripes spawned a lot yeah. of subpar imitators. But 
that first album's great. Um, oh yeah, well you know the the first Corn album's great. <laughs> That's not yeah. the problem. It's, it's yeah, the, no, it's, it's everyone the shit after that, that flows. But the first Halloween uh, movie's great, but the fucking Friday the Thirteenth franchise, you know, oh, no, squeezed out awful. a series of series of of, of larger turds, um, <laughs> a series so, of unfortunate events, to be sure. Yeah, really. So um, yeah, and so some trivia from Halloween too. Um, <clears throat> you know, you mentioned earlier, believing Rick Rosenthal's version of the film to be too tame, John Carpenter shot a few gory scenes that were added into the film despite Rosenthal's object- objections. Uh, this annoyed Rosenthal because he had wanted the sequel to emulate the way that the original avoided explicit violence and gore uh, in favor of well-crafted suspense and terror. In fact, Carpenter had intended for Halloween 2 to do just that, but the success of the new wave of slasher films in the 70- in 79 and 80 made him afraid uh, that a film which was scary and R-rated but lacked bloodshed and nudity would do poorly at the box office, leading to extra uh, graphic material inclusions. So he almost kind of second-guessed himself when he shouldn't have, because I think H2, minus some of that goofy over-the-top gore, like the needle in the eye, this hot tub, would have been on par with the first movie. Like, And I still really enjoy the second one, but I, I think that was almost a, a negative addition to the movie like i think carpenter he he, he kind of you know you know you tinker too long with something i, I think that he kind of got in in that yeah frame well of mind with that i mean one of the things i like about the first one is when michael myers um uh, butcher knives that guy up off his feet onto the wall yeah. he sort of stops and turn kind of tilts his head almost as though he's admiring his work to admire right. his kill, yeah, love that. And and you think, okay, he's a killing machine, but he's not an unthinking killing machine. He must like what he's doing because he he takes the headstone and makes this little arrangement. You know, he hides these other bodies where they're going to be discovered to scare people. I mean, we, yeah, like we, we he's, he's getting into the the spirit of Halloween. <laughs> um, and then, of course, you know, the, there's a, the nurse he kills in the hospital where he just like lets out all of her blood into a giant pool on the floor. And then the EMT guy comes in, gets scared and turns around and like just slips and falls <laughs> slips and knocks himself and, out. Yeah. Gives himself a concussion so bad that he blacks out later on once he does regain consciousness. So it's like, like some of that stuff. I was kind of like, I think he's. It, it worked for me because it, this guy is not an unthinking killer who doesn't like it. He does like yeah. it. He's like, it's not just, oh, I have to kill my sister because some, you know, mythology. Um, so this person is is methodically stalking and killing because it wants to. Right. And, and looking for slightly different ways to do it is there's an intention there. And I think that if someone was just a, a motionless killer, why would they get up and move around to kill people at all if they didn't want to, if they didn't like it? Right. The fact yeah. that he can drive a car around and stalk people, you know, as people said, like, it's weird that he drove a car around all the time. And it's like, well, no, it isn't. You drive, if you knew how to do it, you do it. <laughs> you know, like a real yeah. serial killer is going to drive around and stalk, you know, they're going to stalk people. Um, so the, well, you know, the thing, those things made me like those the character more. Yeah. That it wasn't just this zombie who's just like, you know. No, he he had mystery to him, and he had he had something behind what he was doing. It wasn't just, you know, yeah, he wasn't just as like a zombie or like a monster that just killed indiscriminately. But, um, you know, and it's funny because I, I think that's what works about the first two movies. That obviously later movies kind of kill when they give him all these crazy motives and shit, but. 
you know, 1978 is kind of the height of the kind of serial killer scare, you know, with Son of Sam and Edmund Kemper and all these guys, all that shit that like that time period where they're first even developing the concept of a serial killer. You know, that oh, yeah. the Netflix yeah. series Mindhunter really touches Absolutely. on that, how how well, new of a frontier that was. It's like they, and at the time, it's like, we don't know why the fuck these people are doing what they're doing. And that's way scarier than being like, well, this guy, his wife cheated on him. So that's why he went on a killing spree and killed her right. and then killed her. Right. Like there's. Yeah. Well, and now we didn't really worry about serial killers as much as we worry about just mass murderers who, you know, go postal or they've got like a, a racist motive for going and wanting to shoot up a black church. Mm-hmm. So and, you know, back in the 70s, that kind of thing was really rare. Uh, and now we just had it happen, what, three times in the last week? So oh, it, it, it's the new normal now. I mean, we're, we're, we're going to be yeah. experiencing that from now on, probably. <clears throat> I mean, and and that but that, too, has an air of mystery to it, because I don't you know, like, obviously, we know where the fuck these idiots were rattle, radicalized. And obviously, you know, the between the, the, the kind of fear mongering of, of Fox News and the, the rhetoric of a Donald Trump uh and you know on and on and on and and obviously the kind of echo chamber that these people find uh on places like you know 4chan and 8chan or like gab or all these other social media sites for all these other right-wing shitbags um that's where they 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 are propagandized but i still think it you you can put a normal person in in that situation and and they're not gonna snap and shoot up a synagogue i think there's still that that mystery of like we don't know why the fuck people the 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 mystery of like wanting to to kill other people like it it like in 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 a um i'm trying to think how to say it in 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 like a non-self-defense manner to actually go out of your way to kill other people who aren't like a direct threat to you you know Mm -hmm. like that's 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 still something i think we'll never fully understand why because I don't think there really is a why. And I think that's the scariest thing of all. Like, and that's why Michael Myers works as mm-hmm. a character. Because you don't need to know why. It's just unanswerable. Yeah. Well, it's... Um, what was that that uh, Netflix movie with uh, Jeffy mm-hmm. Wright in it about the wolves? Uh, uh, Beyond the Dark or... something. Uh, Hold the Dark. I think it was Hold called the Hold, yeah, the yeah, Hold the Dark. That, Hold that the Dark. That was a great long burn of suspense that reminded me a little bit of I Halloween. Seen it, where I, I do mean to really watch that. It's yeah. Like you, you don't know for sure if certain people were killed by wolves or this cult. And then you realize yeah. the cult is. Sort of trying uh, to don't the, tell me, don't tell me, don't tell me. I'm not telling you anything. It's going to ruin. I'm just saying you don't know. You okay. don't know, but this cult is sort of, you know, pattern after the remorseless killing tactics of wolves and they even talk about how wolves are one of the only species that will kill when they they're not even hungry they'll just kill for fun right for sport yeah uh yeah for sport or just like you you can't see what's behind those eyes they don't give the wolves don't show an expression to you the way a dog does right and there's just something terrifying to us about that kind of crazy that dogs came from wolves like it, it's it's fucking nuts when you think about how, how <laughs> dumb just, and like happy oh, dogs I know. Are, we know? had to dumb them down and kill the mean ones and feed the good ones and yeah. after fifty thousand years it was it's kind of horrifying when you think about the fact that we basically did eugenics on dogs to make them the dogs that we love today like these yeah. you know our, oh, our companions totally, are basically totally the victims of total fucking eugenics on our part <laughs> well at uh, some point whatever. there had to be a mutual level of voluntary you know a mutual relationship where 
you know, like you, I'm sure you've seen animals who were, became surrogate mothers in the wild, right? Where sure, they just yeah. like they grew up together, or like uh, the um, the the hen who's like um, sitting on a nest of kittens, and you're like, oh, that's cute. Well, that clearly at some point a wolf must have been saved by a person, and they nursed it back to health. And wolf was like, oh, well, you're not such a bad person, and they were like, well, yeah. you're not such a bad wolf either, and they just, you know, they. Then they had some man wolf babies and uh, went on from there. <laughs> no, that was what that movie Alpha was about, which I actually, kind of, <laughs> yeah, right. well, not the man wolf babies part, but the other part. I actually kind of wanted to see that, even though it looked a little silly. The, the, the whole kind of like origin of dogs movie that just came out. Where uh, like, you know, yeah, I haven't seen it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, I don't know how we got that sidetrack to that, but uh, well, it's 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 not a sidetrack to me because it's like we are we've wiped out almost every predator we ever had, right? But still, yeah. in our in our collective subconscious, is this visceral tear? We are still our of, own worst predators. Yeah, this this tear that like we've eradicated that, and we live in a pretty violent free society. And when violence happens, we're just like, holy fucking shit! Why did that happen? You know, because in the in the wild kingdom, that happens every minute of every day. Well, that's just life is 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 constant right. violence and death. And we've you know we're, we we've taken ourselves out of the food chain, yet we're still incredibly violent. You know, in, in the in the grand scheme of things, like you know, some our, of us so, are some society. Of us are. Yeah, well, society as a whole isn't, but we still live with incredible violence uh, side by side with complete civility and docileness and it's it's just very fucking jarring i think for for all of us and i think we're all kind of like yeah, dealing well, with subtle ptsd just under sure, like but we having see to go it in the media the we see it in the media but it's still extremely rare you know for for something like that to happen three sure. times but that's like how many how many churches have existed for decades and there's never been so much as a fist fight in that church you know it's 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 still we hear about it because it is still extremely rare Right, and we sensationalize it, or, you know. Yeah, but it, it's like, when was the last time you saw a, a real like fist fight in, in person between two people? Yeah, no, it doesn't happen often. Not no, often it doesn't. Life. If you, I even <laughs> see like kids kind of roughhousing. I'm like, oh shit, is that going to be a fight? Yeah. And then it's like, no, not really. It's just it. It really. Was, I think the truest level. thing about Fight Club was that whole idea of like people will do anything to avoid actually getting in a fight because it's terrifying. The notion of <laughs> yeah, into a, you exactly. know, like we're like just like spraying exactly. with like a hose. He's like, what the fuck? And he like doesn't oh, do anything. <laughs> speaking of mine hunters, yeah, you know that's that same guy, right? Yeah, yeah Fincher, yeah. No, no, no! I'm talking about the guy that that uh, sprays his Bible. Oh, oh, who? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the the yeah. That's that's one of the space the, monkeys. The, yeah, the, the flat the flathead cop guy. Yeah, flat tab F, F flat top FBI guy. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm flat top Tony. I like that um, guy. He's such like he's such like a stereotypical mook, but it just it really works. It's like oh, all of those it works roles, you know? so well for him. Yeah, but I, I guess like, just the point I'm getting Hollywood back to mook character. Yeah, it's just the idea of why uh, horror movies work is when something feels very real and feels like it could happen because it's mm. n even though it's not a thing that would likely ever happen, right? Um, yeah. Because we are we do live in a sanitized world where violence is still not a daily part of our lives uh and we don't want it to be but we want to get scared by the idea of it at the same time so that's yeah interesting to me yeah so um you know in terms of the the legacy of of, of the film or of both of the films and and the kind of um 
horror industry that spawned from this uh because really it was like you know if, if you're talking about horror, the history of horror movies you say before halloween after halloween because before halloween it was mostly you know the 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 classic monsters uh the universal monsters the draculas frankensteins oh it was uh, corny as hell yeah yeah and you know and i enjoy those movies for what they are and i i think that they for for movies from the 30s create nice atmosphere but um it was a dated formula. They were played out. And, you know, other than a few outliers, obviously the exorcist came in 73, uh, which was groundbreaking in a lot of ways, but the carpenter really created the modern slasher movie. Um, you know, there's so many things that I think without even realizing it, um, in this little rinky dink script, he wrote for this little rinky dink movie, he created the entire modern horror genre. Uh, you know, so just the whole idea of a killer wearing a mask, the unkillable, you know, unstoppable kind of evil character that just the concept of the final girl, which, uh, you know, Laurie Strode is arguably the first uh, real final girl, uh, which is this concept that people talk about with horror movies where there always has to be a female who survives to the end, who survives the killer spree and actually ends up, you know, winning in the end or taking him down or at least uh, incapacitating him enough to get away um why don't they just call it last gale standing <laughs> yeah i mean final girl i final girl has a cool ring to it though it feels like a and you know it seems uh, a little infantilizing but yeah whatever not yeah, to or survivor jump. girl what I, i've i've heard it called both but uh um, survivor woman please <laughs> no um but you know in a weird way and i don't even think he meant to do it but i think it largely had to do with you know deborah hill's influence uh on on the writing process he kind of created this that this extremely kind of feminist trope in 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 a genre that later became kind of um labeled as a misogynistic anti-woman genre and you know sometimes uh that was true certainly of like some of the really schlocky 80s horror movies where it was all you know just gratuitous tit shots and like you know women like being bimbos that get stat like just just absurd over the top kind of sexist shit but- or as i call it art cinema <laughs> <laughs> and um but 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 i mean that's that's not laurie strode and i think he created this kind of prototype for the like female heroines that we see later on in the ripley's of the world and in yeah, you know yeah, absolutely. The other well, interestingly enough, um, you know how the, the, there's also a trope of uh, in movies like this where you have high school kids being played by actors that are like 32, um, <laughs> which always drives me crazy. Oh, I know. It's like, do they not know what real kids look like? Do they not know how to do a casting call for actual? Um, but but Jamie Lee Curtis, <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis was like the only one of the young actors that was actually a teenager. In yeah. this in this whole movie, so I mean, at least credit that they cast an actual teenager to play a high school student. Well, it, it's a bitch because you 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 know if you're under eighteen, you're you're subject to child labor laws, and it's like you don't you don't you can't really effectively mm-hmm. shoot a film with you know you got you got two years you can cast legal adult teenagers. So yeah, um, I won't tell um, you how I know that, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but uh, yeah, that, I actually was just watching Scream the other day, uh, which is one of my favorite all-time horror movies. <laughs> oh, uh, I know. They're all like 40. <laughs> th- th- it's like these people are like 35 fucking years old, and you want me to believe that they're 17. This is ridiculous. <laughs> it's the worst. Like fucking, fucking David Arquette shows up, and I'm like, this dude is at least the same age as all of these high school teenagers, and you want me to believe that he's a fucking cop. Oh, like, you I, know, yeah. like, give me a break. Yeah. Um, I mean, he had a mustache. That's really all he you did, need. But. You know. I love that movie. But that movie also, you know, funnily enough, really uh, owes its entire existence to this movie. And in a, in a lot of ways, that movie revitalized the slasher genre in the way that Scream, or in the way that Halloween kind of created the slasher genre. Uh, and I know my friend Steve's head's exploding right now because he fucking hates Scream because he's a, a, I don't know what the hell's wrong with him. But uh, it the, the, the whole idea of Scream, uh, reviving this this really tired genre up until that point uh you know in the wake of halloween you saw a lot of really poor attempts at remaking halloween you know in the friday the 13th movies Mm -hmm. and the countless slash movies that came and uh scream was like hey why don't we do a movie that makes fun of how ridiculously predictable uh all of these horror movies are but at the same time do something really unique and inventive and uh you know and scary without like all the supernatural bullshit or the mm-hmm. the con- the the yeah you know, it typical... didn't take itself seriously it was like the yeah. green day of punk music yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no and i and i love that about it and actually uh Wes craven who made that film and made you know the nightmare on elm street movie uh movies made another movie called new nightmare which was kind of the proto scream uh which also kind of poked fun at horror movies and like featured like robert england as a character in it like and it was like well he's like plays freddy in the movies but then there's like a real freddy i i think that that was kind of an interesting place that a horror went but there was a real dark period in between kind of the halloween halloween 2 uh golden age of of horror and then the kind of revival i think in the late 90s where it was just awful misunderstandings of what halloween was and why it was successful uh, and it, it just became, you know, as I said, just kind of like, you know, gratuitous nudity and, you know, unlikable one dimensional characters it's like the jock and then the slut and then the nerd and then the stoner. It's like, oh, like what was that movie with John Stewart as the teacher and he gets a pencil stab? <laughs> the, in the faculty. Eye? Oh, my God. Yeah. That fucking movie was awful. Oh, gosh. So funny, though. That movie launched a few careers. That was like the first time J- Josh Hartnett was in a major movie and then what's her name and a couple other people but yeah def- Hartnett, definitely in halloween, not... H2- halloween h2o <laughs> oh of course i mean that was <laughs> it's just it, like you watch that movie and it wasn't scary and it came out when i was still in high school i'm pretty sure but, th- but that and movie is not it, bad like yeah no it's halloween. not bad it's not bad it just it literally is like it's it, the, you know it's like the the breakfast club of horror movies where it's like none of these people would ever be friends in real life ever. yeah right i don't believe this um but you know, and funnily enough, H two O in in the kind of spirit of Halloween, um, you know, endlessly feeding off of itself like the human centipede. H two O, I think, was a lot uh, in a lot of ways the answer to Scream. It was like the meta version of Halloween in a lot of ways. Like it was like a post Scream sure. slasher film. You know, it, it, it shared a lot, of, and I think that's the reason uh, it kind of worked more so than any of the other later sequels. Uh, well, wasn't there... Um, so we didn't talk about uh, Halloween Yeah, I want to talk about some of the other sequels. Which is a total uh, departure. But Halloween 4 
had Donald Pleasance in it, if I recall, but not Jamie Lee Curtis. Is that correct? correct. Jamie Lee Curtis was in the first two movies, uh, and then she was like, "I'm done with this shit," and she didn't come right. back until H2O Halloween. You know, H2O, which was and that was was that in two thousand or later. yeah, uh, that was in ninety eight. It, it was yeah, it was okay. H2, it was twenty years later. So that was in when was Halloween four? Uh, Halloween four was in like mid eighties. Halloween. So what happened basically was so Halloween one. Uh, John Carpenter made then Halloween 2 he made and then at the end he you know obviously kills off Michael Myers because he's like I'm done with this I don't want to go back to Michael Myers um Halloween 3 uh I think he produced but he didn't direct or write um and it was essentially what they wanted to do was transform the Halloween franchise into like an almost anthology series it's like all these movies under the banner of Halloween but they're not going to be about Michael Myers like so the third one was this movie about um this 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 sinister uh corporation called the Silver Shamrock Corporation who was making these masks that like were made with little I mean there's slight spoilers for this movie from 40 years ago but um basically they had a little pieces of Stonehenge in them and and they played the subliminal advertising <laughs> that's a and, and and it like melted from spinal tap yeah. <laughs> and um it's absurd but it, and and like it would like literally melt these children's like faces like it was just like it it was it was kind of like it, the silver it, it, shamrock corporation so that was just like yeah. a, a stand-in for dow chemical basically yeah. It, yeah it's so over the top and 80s and absurd but it's 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 kind of great like when you watch it now and, and it's got its moments of like oh this is silly but it's got a real like menace to it and it's and it's got interesting things to say i think about kind of consumerism and direct-to-child marketing and all this sort of shit and it's like people fucking hated it when it came out because it was like we went to see halloween 3 why the fuck would you call a movie halloween 3 and there's no michael myers like yeah i I think people went in like being like (laughs) well obviously he's going to show up in the third act and like it's like no so i i think that that was the biggest mistake is not just making this as a standalone movie because uh in subsequent years it's recognized as like a really kind of cult uh favorite it's like a beloved movie now but at the time people were like this is the worst piece of shit i've ever seen in my life right Um, well that's i mean that's the thing is you create a mythology even if it's original you can't you can't really change that mythology and you've seen that with star wars where you start to explain what the metachlorians are people get fucking pissed right yeah (laughs) Um, well i mean those movies had their own issues beyond just the metachlorians of course but that was the main thing it's like i don't need to you're if you you don't need mystery away you ruin what was good about it exactly with with these rob zombie turd movies it was like nobody wanted to know what the formative years of michael myers's life were in prison being questioned by dr loomis nobody wanted to see that because that's just like you know what i want to see a michael myers movie where he's not wearing his mask for most of it like nobody fucking said that like nobody in the planet oh. was like he's um, just a sh- and then that movie he's just a shitty kid who's like oh i don't remember killing my sister and you're like okay end scene yeah, i guess yeah. um so uh so but the the backlash against halloween 3 prompted them to revive michael myers in halloween 4 halloween 4 uh is not a great movie i really like halloween 4 though it's got a lot of really interesting things to it like Jamie Lee Curtis isn't back, so they bring back, uh, or they they create this character, Jamie, who is uh, <laughs> uh, Laurie Strode's daughter. We find out in that movie. Mm. Uh, Laurie Strode died in a car crash uh, in between movies or whatever. 
Um, and so then Michael comes back to life after being burned, you know, presumably to death in the second one, uh, and you know goes after Laurie's daughter. Basically, it was was the whole thing of that movie. Yeah, it feels a little bit more like um, some of the uh, the uh, Day of the Dead or Night of the Living Dead movies, where they're sort of like a team of people and they're all heavily armed, but yet they're you know trapped in a house and you know they're not going to make it out of that house because Michael Myers will still kill everybody. Uh, yeah. They had, they had yeah. that going for it. So it, And it had, yeah, it had that cool, I, I just like that kind of, that kind of like vibe where they're all like in the house and they don't know where he is. And it's like, oh fuck, is he going to be like, I, it had elements that, it, that I liked. And, and the end, the, the end of that movie is like one of the great uh, all time twists in, in like a slasher movie where uh, you've seen the fourth one, right? I'm not going to be ruining this for you. No, I, yeah, I've seen it. I, it was, it's still been years ago. So I'm kind of spitballing what I do remember. Um, yeah, um, and trying not to mix it with other movies that I may be confusing parts of it with. But. Well, so at the end of the, uh, the fourth one, uh, you know, after they, they kill Michael or they get rid of Michael, or they, I think they like blow him up or whatever. Um, <laughs> all of a sudden you see this POV shot mimicking the shot of the first, you know, shot of the first movie. Uh, walking up the stairs and then stabbing uh someone with scissors and then it cuts to uh loomis on the stairs like screaming no 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 and then you see jamie like holding a bloody knife wearing like the clown costume that michael's wearing it it's it's a great uh thing that they totally ignore in the next movie and kind of don't really follow up on but i thought that was well it's in a bubble it's a cool movie absolutely and and i guess what i like overall talking about the whole uh, mythology of the, of the you know the uh, where it all went is like the there's no continuity between all these movies <laughs> yeah. and that's sort of okay where the the events of one don't necessarily have to connect to the other and it's it's kind of like you know with the x-men and then logan where it's like this is one possible future and we don't have to explain everything to the audience they get it that this is one person's retelling of this story or one possible way this turns out. It's really just the first two Halloween one and two that are that self-contained yeah, continuity. That, that much continuity. So, and the, and the beautiful thing about that, that loose continuity is that you can create gems of movies in otherwise tired franchises where you wouldn't be able to like, like, like X-Men apocalypse is a piece of shit and it oh, yeah. follows directly <laughs> on the heels of uh, days of futures past. And, um, first class which were decent Log- yeah which were good yeah. i mean you know decent to good uh logan uh loosely kind of sort of follows like the the, the canon of x all the x-men movies but doesn't really and it's like an amazing film like we you know like we talk about it as like a film not just as a comic book movie um so i think that 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 lack of continuity actually kind of helps the halloween franchise in that same way yeah, where you well, can ignore pieces of shit like Halloween Six. And, with, you know. with the whole Marvel franchise, they've had this continuity, but mm. they've already wrapped up some of these character arcs, right? Yeah. And they're done with some of them. So to reboot it again, I don't know how they could top what they did in the last twelve years, but they'll have to break the continuity with different people, different stories, whatnot. But um, interestingly enough, that uh, X Men Apocalypse, who which was so terrible, um, was only a year prior to Logan, which is phenomenal. Uh, and Caliban is in both movies, and, and I forgot that he's in uh, the X Men Apocalypse, and it's the same actor, same um, sort of tone of oh, voice yeah, and everything. Fuck, but his his that. total demeanor is so different, like his his very flashy personality has been reduced just to depressed and nothing. 
And if you watch them back to back like that, it makes Logan even better. Because <laughs> there's the yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, by comparison, for sure. Um, but just the fact that he's also in that, I forgot yeah, I, that. I, 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 I forgot that too. That's crazy. Uh, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and you know, to the speaking to the point of continuity, just to kind of tie it all together, the movie, and I haven't seen it yet, and I really uh, have meant to, and it's gotten really good reviews, uh, but the new Halloween that's coming out, uh, that just came out, uh, Halloween 2018, uh, follows directly off the continuity of just the first movie. It ignores the second movie, um, which a lot of people were kind of pissed about, because they are kind of of a piece, but I, I understand the need to uh, the, the, supposedly the new movie and it and from its marketing it looks like it's very gritty and grounded in reality yeah uh which which appeals to me and i think that the idea of like doing it uh, you couldn't follow the second one for two reasons number one the whole lori is michael's brother thing is kind of silly but but more importantly they blow him up at the end of the second one like that would be an abs- you're immediately taking away the ability to be a gritty realistic film almost like a revenge film by including the continuity of the second one. So I, I think unfortunately kind of the, it had to die in continuity in order to make the movie that they wanted to make. Oh, sure. This yeah. new Halloween movie. You can't blow up an entire hospital and watch a, a body burn up and still just and then be have like, well, now he's okay. Dude. Yeah. yeah. So, and you, you could, you, you could even plausibly argue that, you know, Loomis shot him with a low caliber revolver, he says, you know, I yeah, shot him six times, but it's like, yeah, he shot at him six times. And you see like, him. Dude, you're a doctor. Twice. You're not a fucking <laughs> marksman. We don't know if you really, Yeah, you he's know. he's not a math surgeon by any means or a marksman. No, he's not, he's not a math surgeon nor a firearm surgeon. So yeah. it, it's very possible. Um, but I but I love that. And I love that it the, the new movie seemingly from the marketing seems to <clears> be the full play on the kind of final girl trope to the fullest extent where it's almost a revenge film where it seems like laurie strode's like i've been fucking you know lifting weights and snoring cocaine for 40 years to make sure that <laughs> when you come back i'm gonna fucking kill you like you're not gonna get the drop on yeah. me like you did back when i was a you know a scared well, teenager and, i'm gonna fucking I, kill you i loved that jamie lee curtis who you know is, is an icon in her own right for a lot of different films she's been in yeah. uh was was um, understandably gloating about the success of this last film, biggest horror opening, um, biggest opening or biggest opening for a film with a uh, lead, lead over female lead over fifty five. Yeah. Um, it was the num it was the number one uh, box office two weeks in a row. Um, so I mean, fucking good for her for doing all the films that she decided she wanted to be in, but yeah. especially to like still knock it out of the park with this. And I, I don't usually praise something for the the dollar value it brings in, but with you know film, it's kind of like it, it is a measure of how good it is. In a lot of times, when people still want to see it, especially when it picks up in the second week, which is almost unheard of. Like you know, movies always drop off after the first week. It's just a question of how precipitously and that movie right. based on the word of mouth like you know happens rarely actually i think picked up a little bit in its second week which is fucking awesome you know they they could have waited a little longer and released it around christmas time and really got some of that star wars money but uh, <laughs> i don't know i don't know right. releasing halloween um, 2018 right before halloween little ballsy <laughs> yeah so i definitely want to see that but uh and, and you know it's great for me personally, as a fan of horror movies and as a fan of well done horror movies, like we've talked, you know, a little bit about like movies like that, like Get Out and movies that kind of transcend the horror genre. 
I think it's a good sign that a movie like that can open so big because it tells studios like, hey, there's a real desire for a revival of like good horror and not just, you know, the shit you've been churning out. Like, and, you know, I, I think that's a good sign. Absolutely. I hope it's going to. Well, I mean, you look those. at you look at Black Mirror and I think Black Mirror has been revolutionary yeah. for horror where it's the themes are so close to home and you just look at it and go, I, this is unbearable to watch. And a lot of those can't watch more than one in a sitting. It's like, no, so much. So they had to tone it down in the fourth season and make the, the heroes win once in a while. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But man, the, the one I, I, I think you haven't seen it yet. It's the one in season four. It's in black and white with the robot dog. It's really fucked up, yeah. Oh, it's it's like Terminator, but just more like imagine if Terminator was a um, like a mumblecore art house film with no dialogue and almost no music. Yeah, and that's kind of what it is. And again, it's just like this feeling of no escape that no matter what you do, you can't get out. There's nothing more horrific than that. When, and I think, you know, the reason that I'm so glad that this is kind of being revived is that horror movies speak to an existential dread of real, real issues. And I think that's it's a genre that's unique in that it can talk about real fears and real things like that without becoming like a biopic or beca- like I, I think it's it's uniquely suited to tackle societal problems as a genre. And, you know, when it's when it's being made for cheap schlock and, you know, just gore or like, you know, tits or whatever, like the the kind of uh, the elements that are in vogue at the time are it's not doing its job. I think horror at, at its core is not just there to be a cheap titillating scare kind of fest. It's there to make you think about society and make you think about uh you know things that are happening i mean obviously night of the living dead is one of the first real prominent horror movies that comes to mind and it's like that movie was incredibly revolutionary for its time and said a lot about um race relations and things like that and then you have uh i'm sorry night of the living dead i don't know if i said night of the living dead or dawn of the dead but then dawn of the dead also made by romero was uh had a lot to say about consumerism so i i think it's is that the one that's in the mall yeah, that's the one that's in the mall. Yeah, and, um, yeah. you know, and and it's just really, I think that horror and sci-fi, you know, specifically, and I think they kind of can can cross over, are uniquely suited to to talk about society's problems in a way that other films aren't, without coming across as, you know, or they could, but people wouldn't go see it. You know, yeah. like nobody wants to go be ham-fisted about the the state of race relations and geopolitics so gene roddenberry made star trek you know exactly (laughs) it's like and you know it's 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 why it's the theme and not the plot right well it's why a movie like get out i think to me is way more effective than 12 years a slave because 12 years a slave almost comes across as an exploitative retelling of you know actual slavery by like presumably a bunch of white you know dudes making Whereas Get Out right. is a, really makes you think about well, the if you if you don't know what happened in the events of Twelve Years a Slave, is a movie like Get Out going to resonate with anyone? No, like you. Of course, you need both things. Um, no, yeah. As far as being palatable to the audience, yeah. I I agree. I think a lot of people just they don't want to think about things being that bad, or they just viscerally cannot view it. On on you know they can't watch a scene of somebody being whipped. 
for minutes on end, but they can watch someone being stabbed by a, a monster and they're like, ah, oh, <laughs> that's not me. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I, but also our movies and I think movies like get out afford the ability to reflect how things like slavery and, and the horrors of, of, you know, ancient times are kind of still being perpetrated today in more clever ways, which I don't think movies that, you know, are just purely about history can, can do. You know, like you wouldn't understand that the subtle racism of like white liberals if you watched uh, 12 Years a Slave, but get out, you're like, holy fuck, this is like everyone I know. Like if you're a black person, you see it, you're like this is everyone I know in my life cycle, you know? Do you remember, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy that's played, uh, um, oh shit, I'm going to kill myself. Bemberdink Cumberpatch, whatever the fuck his name is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Cumberbund, he, uh, you know. He, he was like the benevolent slave owner, and you, he kept oh, saying, God. you know, hey, could you let me go? He's like, well, no, I'll, look how good I am to you. So there was a little bit of that there where you thought he was going to be the good one. but Sure. Um, no, I, I get the point you're making. We're, we're getting slightly off, uh, off the Halloween uh, rails here. But um, so uh, final thoughts, what the film's trying to say, anything of that nature? Um, you know, I, I, I'm tepid to ascribe any kind of larger theme to the first movie because it was just written by a guy, you know, out of film school and, and thrown together and made really quickly. But I think a lot of times, and I notice this when I write things and, and you know, I think I've heard Bruce Springsteen talk about this. You don't necessarily understand the themes of something you're writing when you're writing it. You're just writing it to rhyme or writing it to go together you know in terms of the scenes or you mm-hmm. know whatever it is but things are so gr- deeply ingrained in your in your person that they inevitably come out in your writing so i, I think that there are certainly things to be gleaned from from it in that sense uh well, but and I, a theme I doesn't really... ha- uh, yeah a, th- yeah a theme doesn't have to be a sermon either um yeah, yeah. one of my favorite things are movies where uh the the protagonist has a stated reason for doing a good deed, but really below that surface, they've got something of a selfish reason for doing that good deed. And they, they cling to the noble reason to excuse the deeper level, the thing they don't want to admit about themselves. Right. So when I wrote a script once and shot it, that was kind of the core of it. Like why would somebody do a certain thing where their intended reason is more noble than their unstated kind of selfish reason that may not be bad, but it's still just about themselves, right? Yeah. And and either masking an insecurity or trying to you know attain something that they want, but they want it for mm. uh, selfish reasons. Um, so that in itself could be a theme, right? Yeah. So and in, and in, in if you really um, look at what a theme is, you should be able to boil down every theme to a single word. A single word could should be able to define your theme. So if you're talking about a, a protagonist having uh, differing uh, stated versus personal intentions, what would the really theme of that be? Well, the theme is denial. They're in denial about what they want and why they want it, right? So that's your theme. So it, it doesn't have to be this thing about like, well, yeah. here's society and the way we, you know, this everything. It could be some of the theme about a personal uh, a, a character flaw. That could be a theme. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, and I think that's, I mean, that's that's why I think I've been a fan of horror movies, even if I don't fully uh grasp it in the larger sense where i can explain it that way i think i i've always kind of understood that the 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 good ones the good horror movies kind of grapple with those those themes that you know really affect us um so you know 
uh yeah i uh what do you what would you give halloween oh we'll do each movie so halloween one uh out of five uh pumpkin pumpkins with hammer and sickles carved into them <laughs> how many uh um hammer and i would, pumpkins would i would give, give the first one a four okay and h2 halloween two h2 <laughs> not h2o just h2 uh i've so been abbreviating it as h2 all week so it's just in my head <laughs> h2 81 uh i would give four and a half Okay. I think it just it it does a lot of the same things a little bit better, and again, there's a lot of little moments that in my brain I thought were in the first one that actually are in the second one, and there's not as many big standout scenes, but lots of little things they just did a little bit better with having more experience. Yeah, I I really enjoyed both films. I will um, I I think for me the intangibles of the first movie boosted slightly over the second one. I'll I'll give that one a four. The first one a four and a half, and the second one a four the only thing that really detracts from the second one for me uh just 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 a couple uh i, I think goofy shots like the, the the ben tramer like being rammed by a car and then all of a sudden the car exploding spontaneously like, <laughs> and then everyone just walks away like well uh, enough to see here <laughs> and everyone's just like was that him and they're like i don't know and then they all get in the car and leave i'm like what the fuck what <laughs> Well, I um, love that the, the police car hits him completely irres- like irrespective of the fact that Loomis was about to shoot him. Like both things just almost happen to happen. Like just what a poor fucking kid to pick the wrong right? costume. <laughs> and by the way, they're all yelling at him like, stop, stop, stop. And he just keeps walking. And like, what what the fuck is up with that dude? Why was the um, cop car driving 50 miles an hour down the fucking crowded street of hell? It's just, yeah, I don't yeah, know. But, but, but that, no, that but one I, moment, I just pretend is not there <laughs> but I, I i actually laughed i think the first time i saw it but other than that no i i i really enjoyed the second one as well so i'll give that a, a four uh pumpkins with hammers and sickles carved into them the most complicated go. uh there you go. <laughs> rating system we've ever had <laughs> well um, we're complex uh film reviewers so yeah, i think it works yeah, for sure um but hey you know if you want i'm sure what the flick did a nice 10 minute video on uh, halloween where they talk about you know michael myers uh jumpsuit being uh, wrinkled and you know whatever <laughs> not, oh, did, not to shit did, on not to shit they, on that series but it, it, it was uh, just did they he, did he say he didn't like it because of that <laughs> no i'm just i don't even know if they reviewed that but i, <clears> I just the awful awful series yeah um, well it got canceled so now we don't have, have them yeah. as a uh, competition anymore so yeah yeah, but I think I think people appreciate uh, deep dives into movies and movie lore, and I don't think there's enough of that out right now. So I think this, the, the, I think that's why uh, our these podcasts surprisingly I think do almost as well or better than our main show. Um, sometimes depending on the oh movie, yeah, it's like a popular I've, movie. I'll I'll go back and I'll look at the view counts and stuff we did months ago, and I'm like, oh, people are still. Like it's still going up by several couple yeah. dozen every. Uh, so week I mean, so. you know, obviously they're more evergreen, but I think people really kind of crave like in-depth analysis of films that you know it's very hard to find outside of like the kind of fake nerd uh, ecosystem of like the nerdist. Or, you, like, know, you know, and and you got these guys that can do some interesting you know, five to 10 minute reviews, but really it's like, they just want to have a background showing all their collectors merch they've acquired in the last week. And the that's really all shelf it is. Of Blu-rays, impractical uh, yeah. shelf of Blu-rays. Like recessed lighting behind yeah. the shelves of their, it's just like, yeah. no one gives a shit. I want to, I want to hear uh, a film essay in conversation form. And 
you know, whether a hundred people listen to this or a thousand people listen to it, it's just, it's a fun thing to do and talk about and, uh, and, and a fun conversation to have about films and I'm going to learn something and hopefully everyone that uh, listens to this will learn a little bit uh, and hopefully teach people how to be just more cinematically literate in ways they didn't expect to. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good thing to end it on. So, um, yeah, uh, come back and join us Friday uh, if you're into politics and you somehow stumbled upon this uh, <laughs> and have never listened to us before. Uh, we have a lot of shit to talk about this week. I, I oh, don't do we quite ever. know how we're going <laughs> to even fit it into one episode, but we'll, we'll do it. We'll it it'll end up being whatever is the craziest thing that just happens on Friday. That's usually what that, happens. That's the thing. It's like I had like six things that I told you on Monday that we were going to cover. And since then, like three other things have happened. Uh, so it's going to be an interesting week. But um, yeah. We, we, yeah. Fuck. <laughs> so come back and join us Friday for the that's right. uh, main politics cast. And that's uh, the Move Left Idiots uh, podcast, SoundCloud.com. Yeah, we've Move got Left. a new logo about to drop for anyone yeah, who likes I, I think I, I already added it to the thing so if you've if you've downloaded our cast in the past couple of days you probably got one with the new logo oh um, so does it retroactively go up on on all episodes yes if i haven't attached a artwork to the old episode which i don't because i want it to reflect whatever the current artwork is so yeah sure. short answer is yes for for the most part um yeah so uh we will be back friday for that um if you like what you hear from our show, you can go rate, review, subscribe on iTunes uh, or on Apple Podcasts, uh, actually, now is is the uh, Apple Podcasts app. Uh, we are on Facebook, facebook.com slash idiots. You can go uh, like us over there and kind of participate in the uh, discussion. We share memes over there, too. So um, yeah. we only the best and the brightest memes get uh, on our Facebook page. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we have uh, some merch up at uh, teespring.com slash move left. Uh, if you want to pick up a shirt or a tote bag or whatever, that's up over there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> mug. Are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter, actually. I am at uh, Michael underscore Myers. No, I'm at uh, move underscore left on Twitter. Uh, and I am at Candace PDX on Twitter. <laughs> or you're this at Ben guy. underscore Tramer on Twitter. Uh, I'm actually that gets at... like pinned against a car. <laughs> That's me. Yep. yep. Uh, I am at KS Riot nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, and we will uh, see you Friday. Happy Halloween, everybody. <laughs>